So today, we're going to keep going with our sort of mini-series off Romans 1 on looking at uh, same-sex behavior and the LGBTQ issues that um, are so prevalent in our culture right now. And um, I, um, <clears throat> I, I really, yeah, it, it, when Luke brought up the, the prayer today of the Pharisee and the tax collector, um, I was just really grateful for that. Because I think in messages, particularly in the kind of message today's message is going to be, um, it's, it's just so easy for me if I'm listening to rehearse in my mind the, oh, it's them and it's not me, like attitude. And, oh, I'm so glad that someone is speaking about that and those people and not me attitude. Um, so this, is, this, this can really be used, these kinds of messages can really be used in an, in an ungodly way um, to fuel our sense of self-righteousness, our sense of fear, our sense of anger. And that's not what I want to have happen because that will make us, as we talked about last week, it, it will make us useless uh, in God's hands for people in this battle. But, today, but we do need to talk about this. We do need to talk about transgender ideology. And, and, and I really want to ask you to try to keep something clear throughout this message. My critique, my examination and critique is going to be upon an ideology. It's not going to be upon the specific people ensnared in that ideology. In, in other words, I want to, and I want you, and I know you want to, to love and be compassionate and kind and gentle and patient to people who identify in LGBTQ plus categories. There is a tremendous amount of confusion and deep suffering being experienced by folks who experience gender confusion and are ensnared and committed to this ideology. I mean, I, I, some of you may have and may are, may, may be struggling with, with these issues personally in your own heart. And I would just want you to know, like, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be in one kind of physical body and long to be or desire to be in a different one or to feel that you're in the wrong skin with the wrong body parts and to feel this so deeply that um, you want to do, you will do anything and you live in a constant sense of torment. And I, I, I just, we just need to acknowledge that that's a reality or to be in a culture or, or a church community where you're taught that your desires that just sprung up as far as you knew, they were just part of you since they, you were young, that your desires are ungodly and that you cannot at, at, at this point have the godly desires that you wish you could have for the opposite sex. And I, the kind of suffering and the kind of torment that, that comes over a person going through that is foreign to my experience, but, um, but it deserves our compassion. It deserves our sympathy. It deserves our time and our, um, our humble and gentle response. And to have that kind of humble and gentle response, but still be able to offer 
the truth, still be able to offer something worthwhile. We, we have to be able to separate people from an ideology. We, we can't mush them all together. If we don't separate them in our minds, then the people that Jesus wants to love and rescue and redeem, on the one hand, if we don't separate them from the, frankly, demonic ideology that ensnares them, then we will just be like that Pharisee. We will fuel, in, in Luke's passage, we will fuel self-righteousness. We will fuel a spirit of condemnation. And we will eventually, one way or the other, make Jesus look evil to them. But on the other hand, I know that for many of us, especially as I said last week, the older among us, transgender ideology is relatively new and has with a surprising fierceness and a surprising pace come to the forefront of our culture and been ensnared in policies, whether they're corporate policies or government policies or educational policies. In, in a way that's just bracing. Like what in the, in the world has, has gone on in just such a short amount of time? I remember it was 2017 when as a pastor I was talking to a couple about um, their neighbors who were same-sex, uh, they were a same-sex couple. And this, this couple from our church, a man and his wife, were seeking to befriend him. And uh, they had been in our church for a long time. And as I spoke to them about this issue, and because they had, they had asked questions about it uh, at different times, very short questions, um, kind of, if I could put it this way, softball questions. But as I talked to them about this, I remember it very clearly. Um, I was at their, their living room table, and the wife said, I mean... Our gender is more than our body parts, right? And, and I understood, you know, okay, yes, like to, to be a man doesn't just mean to have specific body parts, you know. But, but as we kept talking, what she meant was, how can you insist that someone's gender is simply or, or is clearly expressed in their body? In other words, what she was saying was, isn't it bigoted and short-sighted and simplistic to say that just because someone has female body parts, that they're a woman. And, and she was very clear that this was wrong thinking in her mind and, and fell short of truth. And I was taken aback. I, I just thought I've known this person for a long time and I couldn't conceive that that would be such a normative resident way of thinking in the person. That they would think that, of course, if you have female body parts, it doesn't imply that you're a woman. Of course. How, how could you, how bigoted and how short-sighted was that? And so I, I just, I had, I, I, and I, I kid you not, I had never in my life heard of transgender thinking portrayed that way. Um, and I considered myself a person who was fairly well-read and fairly well-cultured and, and read the news and, and went to movies and wasn't a shut-in culturally. Um, but I didn't understand the, the wave and the power of the ideology that was coming uh, upon 
our culture. And so here we are a few years later, and that kind of thinking is now in many places enshrined in our institutions, and increasingly so. Just down the road a few blocks, some of you guys remember, this isn't even recent, this is now, I think, a couple of years ago, before COVID, a young man who refused to, to call a, a biological girl or a biological boy by their preferred pronouns, and I can't remember if it was a boy or a girl, but just for the sake of argument, it may have been a, a biological girl who was in his classroom. He was a teacher, and it was, I believe it was elementary school, and she was insisting that she was a boy and that he had to call her by male pronouns, and he, as a believer in Christ, believed that this wasn't biblical and wouldn't serve her in the long run, and so he said, I can't do that. And, and the Loudoun County School that he was part of eventually suspended him. And I think they fired him. Um, they certainly put him on suspension. And this became a massive issue. Um, again, this is 20 miles away in Loudoun County and uh, in, in a relatively historically conservative state. And he, uh, I think he eventually uh, was reinstated. And then he moved to a different school because of the well, I, I would have to talk to him, but his name was Tanner and he goes to a church that's, yeah, a few miles away. So I, I think because of that, I, I'm going to backtrack a little bit and go back to, because of, because of the, the bracing, fierceness, overwhelming, and, and the fact that I think I can assume that, that we're all on the same page when we may not all be on the same page. I feel like it's important to, to deal with transgender ideology uniquely from same-sex attraction and to talk about what the Bible says about gender and, and what transgenderology says about gender and where some of the most important disagreements are. In other words, today I do want to talk about clarity. Again, just like last time when we dealt with same-sex attraction and homosexuality. I, I started with clarity and then the next message was on compassion and courage. I'd like to do that again in this area. And so um, I will be focused mainly on truth today, truth claims. And then when we meet again about this, um, I will be focused, Lord willing, on specific applications, questions like what should we do when someone asks us to call them by different pronouns than we understand their biological sex to be? What should we do with a same-sex wedding invitation? What should we do in the workplace when we feel, um, when, we're, when we're afraid? What should we do when we ourselves or someone that we love begins to struggle with these issues? How should we respond? Um, and I'll be trying to touch on those with more application specificity in the next message. And Alberry's book is so good about that, particularly um, in the case of same-sex attraction. Um, it's, it's filled with a lot of good um, advice about that. I'll be using his book to some degree. So, but today is not that. Today is more on truth and truth claims. And, and because of that, I want us to, like I said at the beginning, to really try to separate the ideology from people, the ideology that we need to be really wise about and careful about, and in some cases really stand against, and, and the people that we need to love and have compassion for and have sympathy for. So does that make sense? Okay, so I have three points, and I'm just going to put the point up there, and then I'm going to, after the point, um, talk a little bit, and then we'll end with some prayer. N my first point is this. The Word of God reveals that the authority to define gender and sexuality belongs to the creator of it. The, the Word of God reveals that the authority to define our gender and sexuality belongs 
to the creator of it, to our creator. The word of God makes that claim. We see this clearly from the beginning of the Bible in, first, in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. <clears throat> and that verse goes this way. Those verses, those three verses go this way. Then God said, if we could back up to Ed. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What we see in Genesis 1 here and in Genesis 2, at the very beginning of God's revelation of himself and reality, is that sexuality and gender are clearly at the forefront. And this is remarkable. It, It is clear that God wanted us to think deeply and to know deeply about our identity as sexual beings. In the pinnacle of God's creative work, after he has made everything else, God chooses on the sixth day to crown creation by creating a being with incredible dignity, bestowed with incredible honor. He will create a being to reflect his very own image. He didn't do this with anything else, although truth about God is known through all of creation. In nothing else he created did he say, I'm going to make a being in my very own image, in our very own image. And when God does this, he creates man. And he creates man singularly and then says about man that he is a duality. He creates him in two distinct genders, male and female. These two distinct genders will ultimately be a unity of being that he will bring together as one flesh. As he meaningfully says in Genesis 2, the two shall become one. This idea of two distinct sexes who come together as one being reflects God's own reality as a God who is distinct persons yet exists as one being. Male and female coming together as one also reflects God's greatest act in the gospel. The man leaves his father and cleaves to his wife just as the son left his father and cleaved to his bride, the church. And the word of God tells us that to express the full image of God as God intends requires male and female, requires both genders. There's no hint that the woman is inferior or less of God's image in these passages. And though God as initiator, as head of all, refers to himself as masculine in his pronouns, so to speak, both masculinity and femininity 
are expressions of who God is. They're both rooted in God's character and traits that we've historically associated with one gender more than the other, though all genders have most traits in common in terms of temperament and personality, but all these traits that we might call more feminine or more masculine, all of them are expressions of who he is. God is strong, as we might think of a male, and he is gentle, as we might think of a female. God is a protector, as we might think of a husband and a father, but he is a nourisher, as we might think of, more likely to think of a mother. God is warrior-like, and God is deeply tender. God is a consuming fire. God is beautiful in his holiness. God fights for life. God gives birth to life. So male and female is an expression of God. And then God doesn't just give humanity genders. He gives them different bodies that are part of that gender and define that gender. Male and female bodies follow their function. That is what they are bodily, including their sexual differences in the garden are to serve their distinct roles in achieving God's purpose for them. To Adam, he gave a body that had great strength, most likely more strength to protect and to provide, to defend and to build. To Eve, he gave a body with exclusive and wondrous capacity to conceive and carry and nourish from her own body, human life that he didn't give to Adam. And in sexual union, these different bodies were made to fit, to bring to one what the other lacked, and to become one in intimacy in a way that gives them both joy in each other, that, that solidifies their emotional bond with each other, and also from that union brings new life. For Adam and Eve, this new life that would come from their union would allow them to fulfill God's purpose for them to fill the earth, to bring order to it, just as God, through all the weeks and days, or through all the days of Genesis 1, filled the earth and brought order to it. So as image bearers, they would do too. But, but listen, notice something extremely important right in front of our faces that is easily overlooked in all of this. And this is the crux of this point. All of this is from God. God did all of this. Gender is God's idea. It is not our idea. Gender reflects him. It does not firstly reflect us. We are the reflection. He is what is reflected in our genders and in their differences. He is reflected and in their union. He is reflected. All that is to say that gender and sexuality does not belong first to us. It belongs to him. It is holy to him. 
It came from his heart and his mind. It is holy to him. It belongs to him. It has meaning that is sacred to him. Husbands are not allowed, they're not given room by God to take God's meaning for what their authority and what headship meant to be and to disgrace that image and corrupt it by oppressing and being selfish and being harsh with their wives. Because it's God's idea. Husbanding is from God's heart. He's the one who knows what it is, who defines what it is. And so it is with our genders. They're, they're holy to him. This whole thing is sacred to him. Sexuality is way more than the world understands. It's a picture of God. And it is holy. And it has purposes that he designed for it that are sacred to him. So whatever we do or think or decide about our gender or our sexuality, we cannot forget that it is from him and through him and ultimately for him. So that's really my first point. Gender and sexuality belong to God before they belong to us. And yes, they have been broken by all of us. Over history, certainly more sexuality and experience has been broken by people who are other, who are heterosexual than homosexual. Has been broken and disgraced and trampled on by the human uh, family. But if we want to repair it, we can't take it for ourselves and say, "Oh, it belongs to us. It belongs to me. It belongs to you." Before we say, "Wait, we didn't create this." We didn't design this, so we don't have the right to do with it what we want. We have to look to the one who created it, to whom it is holy. And this brings me to my second point as we consider God's truth about gender. There's one fundamental way, I think more than anything else, that that brings it into conflict, that brings transgender ideology in conflict with God's word. And and that's, this is my second point. My second point. One more back. It should be two. There it is. Thanks, Ed. In God's word, biological sex and gender are one and the same. In God's word, biological sex and gender are one and the same. So those of you who are aware of transgender ideology, maybe more technically understand that this is a massive a fault line between God's word and this ideology. In our world today, gender is increasingly seen, enshrined in academia, now more and more enshrined in public policy and in softer culture. In our world, gender is increasingly seen as something completely distinct and different than biological sex. In other words, in transgender ideology, you can be born a biological male, and yet feel or choose that in your immaterial being or soul or mind, you are actually a woman or something in between or neither. And that that is right and true in gender ideology. You are therefore what you feel and what you believe. And as a widely held philosophy, widely held, this this idea of biological sex as distinct from what we call gender is absolutely new as a concept in history. 
And since Oberfell, the Supreme Court decision legalizing same-sex marriage, it has washed into our world like a flood. And I, and I do believe there are spiritual reasons for that. I don't think that was just something that just sort of happened along the way in American thinking. I think in the heavenly places, that, that decision, that court decision, when the kings of our nation said, this is blessed, this is right, I think it opened a floodgate um, into our culture and into our world spiritually. But, but more importantly and more clearly, this ideology that biological sex is distinct from gender is completely foreign and contrary to God's word. In God's word, as for most of human history, there is no difference between biological and sex and gender. They are the same thing. And for thousands of years, they just meant the same thing. If someone said, what's your gender? You would just say, well, without even thinking about it, it is what my body is. In all of God's breathed scripture, it is assumed absolutely that one's biological sex is identical to one's gender. They are one and the same. John Piper puts it this way. One of the clearest ways we see this reality in the Bible is to see the many references to male child and female child. And then he sort of apologizes for having to even bring this up, but, but it, we're at the place, we're at the point in history where we need, we need to bring this up. In other words, before children were old enough to express any gender-specific behaviors or desires or preferences, they were identified as male and female. And this identity defined their lives. For example, sometimes in matters of inheritance and in other ways, there's no thought in the Bible of the possibility that sex biologically identified could change because it's rooted in biology or in biblical terms, it's rooted in creation. Therefore, Piper goes on, when Genesis 1.27 says, God created us male and female, there is every reason to think that this included our biological genetic nature at the root of all other transcendent aspects of male and female personhood. So we have a pervasive biblical warrant, meaning a, a biblical reason to say that God wills, that his will is that our sexual identity our gender in today's terms, what we believe about whether we're male or female, that that is to be of one piece with our biological genetic identity. In God's word, biology and gender are synonymous. They are the same. Once more, in, in God's word, gender is fixed. In the New Testament, as well as in the old, gender is not something one can transition in to or out of. We see this inculcated in, in the laws between men and women and sexuality and their practice. For a man to dress up as a woman in Levitical laws and in 1 Corinthians 11, or for a man to act sexually towards another man as if he were a woman, as if that other man were a woman in homosexual practice, is expressly and always forbidden in strong terms whether it's Moses or across the covenants to the apostle Paul. So biologically, how God made our bodies and therefore what we are, the gender God gave us are one and the same and they're not transitionable, they're fixed. 
And at this point, it might be helpful to briefly touch on creation, to briefly touch on biology and how it reveals God's created design. Many of you guys might know this. Many of you guys will, um, maybe it will be new to some of you. But, But at conception, we've known for a long time now that at conception, nine months before the baby's born, at the first act of life coming into being, at conception, every new human being receives their gender. And that comes through this activity of the the sharing of blueprints from mom and dad. When a life is conceived in the womb, when the sperm meets the egg and the blastocyst forms, an equal number of DNA blueprints come from mom and come from dad. And scientifically, we call them chromosomes. They're bundles of DNA. I'm going to call them DNA blueprints. They're, they're, they're basically extractions that tell this new life what it will be. Eye color, the build, the chin, the nose, the hair color, and probably temperamental aspects too. And there are 23 pages of blueprints, so to speak. Chromosomes. I'm calling them pages of blueprints. There are 23 of these that come from each parent. The mom brings 23 into the book of this little life, and the dad brings 23 into the book of this little life. But one of those pages that meets up with the mom's page from the dad, it comes with a specific instruction on boy or girl, male or female. The the mom's page is always an X-shaped chromosome, an X blueprint, and the dad's page can come in and be either X or Y. And depending on if it's X, it's a female, and depending on if the blueprint says Y, it's it's a male. So the, the, the page that the, that the dad brings into that blueprint, which comes, matches up with the page that the mom brings of that blueprint, that decides whether it's a boy or a girl. And that happens at the very moment of conception. And it will be one or the other. It will not be both. It will not be a combination. It will not be something else entirely. Scientifically, <clears throat> there is no such thing, normatively speaking, as a spectrum of gender or a range between them, or outside of male and female. One genetic specialist puts it this way. If we're talking about humans, there are people who belong to the group with the potential to produce sperm, whether or not that potential is realized, or there's abnormalities that present it. There, There are people who belong to the group with the potential to produce sperm, or people who belong to the group with the potential to produce ova or eggs. And the names for these are male and female. Those are the gametes that can come, the bundles of chromosomal, the chromosomal reality that, that can occur, the options that there are. Now this doesn't mean that there are not abnormalities that occur. The natural world is fallen and broken And in very, very rare cases, male babies with XY chromosome, with the male blueprints on those pages, fully male blueprints naturally, can be born with their male body parts internally hidden inside their bodies and outside them, female body parts developing externally. These kinds of situations where it's extremely difficult to tell whether someone's sex is male or female, are incredibly rare. 
depending on the definition of this dis disorder, and you can imagine this is a political disagreement as much as it's scientific at this point. People will argue about how easy or hard it is to see these differences. So I've, I've read some about this issue across different articles. But depending on the definition of the disorder, we're talking about one baby in 1,400 to in some of the more difficult cases, one baby in 5,000 to some of the real clear cut, I cannot tell chromosomally or you know, body-wise what this baby's gender is, one in 100,000 births. I can show you the articles that I've looked at to try to get to this, um, some reasonable figures. But this is in, these situations are tremendously difficult for parents and for children. And they require a tremendous amount of counsel and care and scientific help, medical care. And they, from everyone, they, they need love and sympathy. And an extremely layered and holistic way. But if we're talking about the transgender ideology movement that we've seen over the last 10 years, particularly, the idea that one's biological sex is different than one's gender in the overwhelming vast majority of transgender identifying individuals. These are not people who are suffering from biological abnormalities. It's, these are cases of, of people who are clearly biological male or female from birth who are having a crisis of identifying how they feel and what they believe about their own gender. Uh, this is my third point, <clears throat> last point. Fundamental problems of transgender ideology, denying objective reality and gender meaninglessness. This feels like a college course now or a high school course. Sorry about that. Um, but I do feel like in, in the context of this, the more dispassionate I can be in terms of headings like this, maybe today the better. One educational tool for children that I read through created by transgender ideologists defines gender identity this way. And I've seen this, I think, also in the American Psychological Association. Here's how gender identity is defined in, in some of the literature for children. Transgender identity, gender identity is defined as how you, in your head, define your gender based on how much you align or don't align with what you understand to be the options for gender. I'm not making that up. That's in a, a figure called the gender bread man. That's now I think changed to the gender unicorn. And these are tools for children <clears throat> to understand their gender. How you, in your head, define your gender based on how much you align or don't align with what you understand to be the options for gender. The APA defines gender, the American Psychological Association defines gender this way. A person's internal sense of being male, female, or something else. In other words, gender can mean what you want it to mean, which essentially means, philosophically, there is no objective definition possible. Taken to its logical, logical extent, it makes words increasingly meaningless. I haven't seen Matt Walsh's full movie. I'm not endorsing Matt Walsh. 
I, I don't know enough about him too. But what I have seen is interesting. He, he directed a film called What is a Woman? Some of you guys might know about this. And in this movie, he as a filmmaker goes around asking various people in transgender movement to define what a woman is. And essentially, from what I've seen, he is told that a woman is someone who believes they are a woman. To which he responds, and so what is that? What is the thing that they believe they are? And do you get his rhetorical point? In other words, saying a woman is someone who believes they are a woman does nothing to explain what a woman is. It is literally circular logic that is devoid of meaning. But here's the problem for transgender ideology. If transgender ideology admits the truth that a woman is definable, biologically, as women have been for all of human history, then it would have to admit that someone who is not a biological woman, but feels like they are, are still not a woman. The irony is that in order to allow anyone to be a woman in the spirit of inclusivity, transgender ideology must deny womanhood altogether as any, anything meaningful. And this, by the way, is an offshoot is why there is an increasingly fierce conflict between transgender ideology and feminism, which I won't get into today, but that's some of you guys might know about J.K. Rowling being caught up in that and, and others. Um, transgender ideology also asserts false ideas such as sex is merely a social construct. In other words, it's something that people made up through prevailing ideology of the day. It's not true. It's a social construct. And sex is something that's assigned at birth. And the point there is, it's after someone's born. It's not what they are, it's just something someone else threw on them. It's not objectively true. This is amazingly ironic. And I'm talking about the ideology. Because the irony is that, of course, that is exact, that, that social construction and assigned after birth, that is exactly what transgender ideology does. It, it denies the objective reality of observable biology of the baby, all of which came from DNA-generated blueprints at the moment life began, and it ignores all of that objective truth and it gives all of its authority to define gender to a person caught up in the prevailing ideology of the day. It is, it is as like a truth guy, a teacher guy, I need to be careful because when I, when I see these kinds of philosophical bait and switch things, I, I do get, I get railed up <laughs> and I can lose the plot of loving people. But I don't want you to be fooled by the masquerade of this because it's so pervasive and it's so quick. And I think the challenges for bi biblical Christians are gonna be significant.
in jobs, in careers, in public life. So I'm trying to ask you to consider that this is a masquerade. In transgender ideology, terms like mother are increasingly anathema. They must be replaced by terms like birthing parent. Because mother is a female title that excludes men from having babies. And in transgender ideology, a man can have a baby just like a woman can have a baby. But the truth is, no biological man can ever give birth to a child. A woman can claim to be a man and give birth. Time magazine put a, 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 a transgender man on its cover. It was a biological woman who's now got a beard, but now has a, a big womb because they're having a baby. And it, the Time magazine said, first photos or, or pioneering type photos of a man giving birth, as if this was some incredible miracle of freedom and inclusivity. It's a biological woman. I'm not trying to be mean or cruel. It's a biological woman who was given at birth the ability to have female reproductive gametes in their DNA, and is doing what women do, what they've done for millennia, giving birth to a child, because that's what women can do, and men cannot do that. But Time Magazine is saying, no, men can now do this. It's a falsehood. It's patently untrue. And this is a religious-like zeal underpinning transgender ideology. You have the right to define your own truth for you, and that is true. In other words, truth is at the mercy of the individual, not a function of reality. And listen, certainly not from God. And if we stick to that logic, if we really stop to consider the implications, we really are left with meaninglessness. If I have the authority to define my own sexual identity, contrary to all objective truth about my body, well then, who's to say that I cannot identify my racial identity or my age identity? Contrary to all objective truth, who's making up the rules here? I mean, who are you, if, if, if you don't have the right to tell me that I'm a white man in my early 50s, then why should you have the right to tell me that I'm not an African-American woman? Or, or even an Asian child? Or what right do you have to tell me that I'm not two people or three people? What gives you the right? The implications for society are maddening. Philosophically speaking, if my reality is mine to define and you have to affirm it, and that's really the crux here for Christians in the marketplace and government jobs and in teaching positions. If I have the right to define my reality and you must be compelled to affirm it, How can we ever continue together unless you are compelled to affirm non-truths? Why can't I claim to be an ice cube melting right here in front of you? We've talked about this before in the case of marriage, how marriage loses its meaning if it's divorced from God's definition. If marriage isn't one man and one woman for life, then why, if it can be two men, then why in the world can't it be three? Why can't it be three men and two women? Why can it not be a son and his mother 
and her sister. If a child of eight is being given the authority by the state to choose their own gender and change their body, then why is that child not allowed if they're willing to marry their own father? Who are you or I to define reality for them? I'm not trying to be shocking for shocking's sake. I'm not trying to ridicule anyone or belittle anyone's pain. I'm just asking you to consider the presuppositions of this ideology to see its inherent contradictions so that you're not swept up in its falsehood and rendered useless to those who are. Because Christians are going to have to be willing to be mocked, to be called hateful, to be called bigots. They're going to have to be willing to suffer with dignity at their workplaces, at their schools, in their own families. And this is going to be hard for the church because for, for a long time, the professing Christian in this country has, has often been in the seat of cultural authority. Whether the culture has been professing Christian or not, there's been an agreement that, that the Judeo-Christian worldview is an okay, acceptable worldview. And that's changed very quickly. It's also a problem because professing Christians have often treated people in, in gender confusion and same-sex attraction with mocking and with shameful condemnation, shaming people and condemning them instead of treating them with the love of Jesus. And when those who call themselves Christians do this, they pervert the gospel witness, they lie about Jesus, and they make it that much harder for anyone after to want to hear the truth from them or from others who align themselves as Christians. As I said at the beginning, people struggling within themselves about their sexuality or trying to help loved ones struggling are often in deep pain that's profound and long-lasting. And they need our ears. They need our compassion. They need us to affirm their grief. They need us to affirm it, to affirm their torment. They need us to affirm that their pain is real and it hurts. We have to do that. And, and God's justice requires that we affirm that it is painful because it is. But they do not, listen, brothers and sisters, they do not need us to affirm the ideology. We can't do that and serve them. They do not need us to affirm the ideology that calls light darkness and darkness light. We will be useless to them just as much as if we condemn them and shame them so I have spent today trying to alert your mind to think carefully about what is really true and what is not true. And as I said, next time, probably after Easter, we will take a deeper dive in what does it mean to live compassionately and relate compassionately in specific situations. And if you have those specific situations in your mind, whether you're going through them or not, will you please email me? I'd love to know more and try to prepare more. The last round of questions I had from some of you guys via email really helped me to recognize like clarity is going to take a little longer uh, than I thought. Um, so please just keep the emails coming. I've really appreciated it. And if you need other resources, I will try to get them for you. Just I've given some of you guys this book
My last thing I just want to say to you guys is these categories are new and they're challenging for some of us. But at, at the core, the principles of truth and untruth, the principles of redemption and miraculous power of God for change. They're the same that we've always been grappling with. The gospel works. Jesus works. He is able to deal with these situations. He is able to give us the strength to love with truth and to love with compassion. He is able to give those of us who are struggling with these issues personally power to follow him out of whatever he's calling us to follow him and into whatever he's calling us to follow him into. This is not too big for God. We don't have to compromise the truth and we don't have to surrender to fear and anger. Jesus is able to help us with all of this. And so I I think as I do close, I I want us to cast our hope in him and give our hope to him and put our hope in him again that he is able. I have many friends who've battled personally with these issues in their own beliefs about themselves. And I've seen them walk faithfully with God for years and years and years. In some cases, they've married in a biblical marriage and have families and they still struggle with desires that are contrary to that marriage And God sustains them. Just like I've seen him draw men out of pornography and sustain them and forgive and cleanse again and again and again. I've seen God sustain men and women in singlehood for decades and give them hope to keep going. God is able to do these things. So let's put our hope in him.